Driven by a commitment to advancing interoperability in healthcare and making meaningful impact in the lives of millions, Point Click Care is developing solutions to real-world problems to mend a fragmented care system to enable faster, better decision-making, and improved clinical outcomes. Learn more at www.pointclickcare.com. Point Click Care is a proud sector partner of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I hope that we build upon what we've learned during this pandemic to allow these caregivers to become truly essential members of the care team and to be recognized as such. And there are models of that across the world that we could follow. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. As the number of seniors in Canada continues to grow exponentially, the need for a continuum of care will need to expand to keep up with their needs and their desires. As a geriatrician at Sinai Health System in Toronto, and as an academic working toward a PhD in epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health, Dr. Nathan Stahl is keenly aware of the unique needs of seniors and how those needs will change as our population continues to age. In his research, Dr. Stahl looks at the impacts of caregiving for those living with dementia, as well as at drug safety for older adults. Although in normal times, his clinical work is focused on acute care geriatrics, during the pandemic, Dr. Stahl provided emergency supports in long-term care homes and was a member of vaccine teams that supported long-term care residents and staff. And he sat as a member of the province of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. I am so delighted, Nathan, to welcome you to the show. In full disclosure, I can add to your resume in that you are also a candidate for the uh, Liberal Party of Ontario in the next provincial election in, in 2022. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So today, I really wanted to talk to you about the evolution of the seniors demographic in Canada as, as a starting point. What are the current healthcare needs of our aging population and how do you see them evolving in the future? I think it's oft repeated, the demographic changes, and we've been talking about this for decades, right, in terms of you know, what is coming. I think like many other things, you know, we've seen these projections, we're now experiencing those demographic changes. And in 2015, the number of older adults, those 65 and above, overtook the number of children in, in our province, those 14 and, and younger. But we haven't you know, moved the needle to transform our health and social care systems to keep up with those both projected and now realized demographic changes. You look at just starting from the bottom up in terms of education of, of professionals and not just doctors. I mean, you know, I am a geriatrician, which is actually a rare breed in medicine. There's about 10 times as many pediatricians across the country as there are geriatricians, despite the fact that I just told you that, that older adults now outnumber children. But this extends to all other health disciplines. It's not just about 
the frontline physicians, it's about nursing, it's about all our allied healthcare professionals that we work with. So we haven't even readied the healthcare workforce for the changes that we're seeing in the healthcare system in terms of who we're looking after. And then, of course, you know, there's a broader conversation happening about how we haven't educated all of society and prepared all of society in the places that we live to accommodate the needs of an increasing aging population. And that's a huge fundamental problem just, you know, on the face of it, because not only are we unprepared for these people and we cannot accommodate them, but we then force people into quite difficult decisions because they, you know, as people age and they lose ability to live independently and they may develop cognitive impairment, you know, it makes it quite hard to keep these people living in the community, especially those that are sort of in the in-between phase, those who could probably live in the community with a little more support. And then we have this long-term care system. And of course, we've long talked about how this system has been long neglected. And so, you know, we have a whole a whole continuum of care and a whole society that's not designed to meet the needs of these individuals. But if we don't actually reimagine, as as we're going to hopefully talk about today, what society and healthcare systems and long-term care systems look like for this now aged population, we won't move the needle far enough at all to be able to really provide the type of you know, society and life that older adults and older Ontarians deserve and older Canadians. And frankly, this is a conversation that's not just happening here, it's happening across the world. I want to dig in a little on that, the workforce uh, comments that you made. You know, I'm really concerned about how do we grow workforce in short order? And have you seen any really innovative models? Do you have any creative ideas on that? You hit the nail on the head, right? We can't possibly... You know, every medical school has a mandatory pediatrics rotation, right? Geriatrics, you know, you talk about geriatric psychiatry being 2012. Geriatrics was only a discipline that evolved in, I believe, the 70s in Canada, right? Like this was not, people didn't live that long. And so because it's such, you know, ironically, look after the oldest people, but it's such a new discipline. um, And because it's something that's not particularly valued in the way that others are, we don't actually have the core to be able to train those people, right? So we can't have, even if there's a desire to have every medical student do a geriatrics rotation, there aren't enough of us, especially when people like me are off doing policy and and all the other things and, and can't always be on the ward to train people. So, and I think the same exists across the health disciplines, right? If you look at people who have specific expertise in that. But I think there's ways that we could be a bit more creative uh, in thinking about health education and thinking about the way we expose people to older adults. So one of the things that has struck me is some of the more innovative social programs that bring older people together and younger people together. Because one of the things is people don't actually interact. So, you know, that that model of younger people finding the cost of housing you know, unaffordable and actually living as roommates with older adults, right? And that that sort of symbiotic relationship and then learning about the wisdom of older adults and, and that inspiring people to perhaps go into disciplines that care for older adults. I actually knew a student who did this for several years while he was doing his undergraduate degree, right? And I think in the same way, look, uh, most long-term care homes actually don't have geriatricians or geriatric psychiatrists, but we have tons of family doctors, nurse practitioners, people who are experts in care of the elderly who could also support uh, health education in a different way. 
And none of the medical schools that I'm aware of across Canada have any mandatory rotations in long-term care. And in fact, most healthcare professionals can go their entire career without ever stepping foot in a long-term care home, despite the fact that they spend a lot of time caring for these patients when they come into the acute sector. So I think if we make this a priority to both expose people to older adults just in everyday life, and we actually make effort to build the capacity to train people up, not necessarily through the you know typical exposures that we've you know relied on for rotations. I think there's definitely a way to do this and to reach out and to leverage some of the other sort of you know multiple people who work in these sectors. And I think there's ways that we could break down some of these barriers to work together and to build that exposure because people don't see, frankly, care of older adults as a desirable place to spend their efforts and their energy going into. It's not something that's valued. And I think that extends beyond clinical care to also probably leadership roles as well, right? Um, and so that is a huge problem. But I think I think there are ways of doing it. I've highlighted a sort of couple ways that I can think about it socially and also within the long-term care sector. And those things could certainly be scaled up. You know, I've had some really interesting conversations with some of our members who are thinking about putting student housing on their campuses. So a campus of care that has student housing, that has children's daycare, where you start to bring in intergenerational programming uh, into the campus and, and really support the aging population in, in their purpose. And I think about the people who are aging and so the back end of the baby boom generation, uh, how do we keep them healthy and well? How do we keep them at home? Recognizing that today in Ontario, we have 40,000 people waiting for long-term care and they're really not waiting for anything because they're not going to get it. And whatever it is, right? How do we deconstruct it? That's that sort of binary choice we've created for people, right? And, And I mean, there's endless research about how many people we could support in in different settings, right, with, with a little bit of resource, right? And then, of course, I think the other part of it is, and I don't think you're going to disagree with what I'm going to say, is that we also shouldn't look at that at long-term care as, as such a negative option, right? It's often presented as, you know, you've exhausted all those things, you failed to cope or whatever the negative connotations are that are applied to it. But for many people, having someone admitted to long-term care is a tremendous relief. And so we also need to build that capacity in the system as well, right? Because we can't expect that, you know, I, I think there is truth to the fact that we could make small investments in home care and have some people remain in the community. But on the other hand, you know, we can't romanticize home care too much as well, because that labor will fall primarily on women within society. And there is a limit to the care that somebody could provide as we live in an increasingly globalized society where, you know, children don't live in the same city and women are still expected to take on these caregiving roles. So we will always need long term care and we need capacity in that system, too. And we need to improve the, you know, the standard of care. But we shouldn't view that as as a negative sort of option as well. And so I think like many things, you know, uh, and sometimes nuance has been lost during this pandemic, both things can be true. We should both invest in keeping people in the community, but we should also invest in expanding capacity in long-term care and making it a, a better system for older adults. 
As the country's senior population continues to balloon over the coming years, we'll need to make some major societal changes to ensure that our seniors receive the care they need. Dr. Stahl noted that in Ontario, we have 10 times more pediatricians than geriatricians in our workforce. That's not to say that we don't need pediatricians, but it does speak to what we as a society value. It's fair to say that today we are unprepared for the demographic shift. This lack of preparation has put seniors and their families in challenging positions, and this runs the risk of eroding trust in public services, and it runs the risk of amplifying ageism. Dr. Stahl shared his thoughts on how we can begin to develop a more supportive, collaborative system. You know, one thing I I am wondering about is how do we build out competencies and capacity early on? So how do we support school kids in valuing seniors and relationships with seniors? And um, I always worry because sometimes I think... We put so much into technology as saving the day. And and I think certainly over the last months in the pandemic, we've seen it really become a useful tool, but but we can't lose the humanity in in our care models. So a few things tied up into your question. So one is how we build that sort of intergenerational competency or even awareness, I would say, into the needs of older adults, right? Look, this is going to sound simplistic, but I think it just needs to be made a priority. And so, uh, you know, I think you are correct. And, you know, it will take disruption, but it will also take institutionalization of, of educating people about the needs of older adults and also, you know, training people at each step of the way, whether it's from school to university, you know, to build a society that's capable of creating and innovating for older people, right? Um, and and there's probably, look, I'm not a business person, I'm a scientist and a researcher, but I suspect there's probably a huge market for something like this as well, right? And that leads to your question about technology. I'm a, you know, a geriatrician and a researcher, and my my personal bias, just in full disclosure, is that, you know, many of the older people I work with it's often high-touch, low-tech solutions that are much more uh, helpful to people than high-tech, low-touch solutions, right? But I think that speaks to my first point, which is that, you know, we haven't created technology in a way that's accessible to older adults, and we always try and force it on this demographic in a way where it's just like, clearly, the keyboard that I'm using and the technology I'm using is going to require modification for somebody who's older, and it's going to require a different type of consumption. And we've not designed that, right? We can't expect that this demographic is going to be able to use the same hardware and software that we all use. And that's where I think that, you know, that piece about educating people along the way and then designing a world that's more age-inclusive will lead to technology. Yes, it's been helpful in some ways, Yes, it's provided virtual care and it's provided some ways of families to communicate with older adults during the pandemic. But we know, you know, and there's research on this, who has been left out of that. It's primarily people with cognitive impairment and sensory impairment and and those that may have language uh, barriers that, you know, we can't accommodate at all all the time. So um, we need to, if we're going to leverage technology, we also have to recreate the technology in a way that, that better suits them. And, and of course, there are examples of that as well and people working on that. So, you know, an example I can give you is 
I had the privilege of visiting Stanford a couple summers ago, and one of the companies that the uh, physician who invited me down was interacting with was actually someone who was using was creating a monitoring system for people with dementia within the home so that there was sort of a virtual caregiving person being able to watch the older adult within the home when the act, you know, the, the human caregiver had to leave the home. And so they had a way of both de-identifying the individual. They actually made them into a stick figure so that there wasn't an invasion of privacy, but it also had AI built into it that it knew when the person was doing something that was potentially dangerous. So if it if they were climbing up a ladder or going into the ki- certain kitchen drawer or you know interacting with the stove, this would trigger an alarm for the human caregiver, right? And so I think that there are ways if we actually thought about it, there are huge needs of things that need to be done, but they need to, you know, do exactly what this company was aiming to do, which is de-identify it and maintain their privacy and dignity. And and you know, we can talk about, you know, the ethics of monitoring, but this is just simply one example. You know, the point being is that there probably is a market for this, but we need to also reimagine that technology in general to better suit the, their needs. I think that's one of the things that's also emerged through the pandemic is a recognition of the role of families, friends, essential caregivers as part of that care model. Could you maybe speak about your experience with that? I know you were in long-term care homes in, in, in the first two horrific waves. As a geriatrician, you deal with families and work and support families. Is this something that will continue to grow and evolve? Or is this something that we risk losing as we move back to more traditional models of care post-pandemic? Yeah, I would argue that these people were always there providing that care and that they were just never really recognized. I think the recognition, though, it was it was, it came with, you know, tragedy, right? Like many things. And one of them was, you know, the fact that I don't think most people realize how integral and how essential these people were every day. Many people come in provide basic care, emotional support, assistance with bathing, feeding, right? And we, we've seen, you know, anecdotally and, and some of the research we did, and, and again, it's not all related to family caregivers not being as present during this time, but we know that, that people did deteriorate by not having those family caregivers with them at all the times, right? And that's why, to the credit of, you know, the sector, you know, around the, before the second wave, there were changes made to the you know, the visitor policies within long-term care homes to allow family caregivers back in, even during outbreaks, because we realized that these people were a vital and life-saving source of care. And also, to the credit of the province, they were prioritized for early vaccination along with staff members. And to me, that that made me extremely proud as someone who was you know, researching caregivers, had been trying quietly to, well, not quietly, I just don't think I had as much of a voice at the time, my voice was quieter, I would say, to, to raise awareness about these these caregivers. And also, I have a grandmother who lives in a retirement home, right? And so I saw the deterioration that she experienced firsthand. And, uh, you know, I could sort of, it was a window, a, a very personal window into what was going on, and literally a physical window, because I spent most of the you know, first several months of the pandemic interacting with her through an iPhone through her actual window. So, yeah, I, I don't think that that will change at all. I hope that we build upon what we've learned during this pandemic to allow these caregivers to 
become truly essential members of the care team and to be recognized as such. And there are models of that uh, across the world that we could follow. Uh, A simple example is my hospital, Sinai Health, actually at the Bridgepoint campus, even before the pandemic, was giving out badges that had caregiver on it so that they recognized them and that, you know, they recognized that they would be staying beyond the traditional visitor hours, but also, you know, when people would ask, you know, who are you? It sort of was a way of formalizing their role within the healthcare system. I also think that there are huge ways we need to protect people financially because they are providing 75% of that care unpaid. And there are examples of tax credits across the the country. Uh, There are other examples in Scandinavian countries where money that could have been spent to uh, put that person into long-term care is given to the caregiver or given to the person to be able to spend on their own. I mean, there are just many ways that we could do this And I think also we need to recognize it's a gender issue too, right? Uh, Wives are much more likely than husbands to provide that, than husbands are to provide wives their care. Same things with with daughters as compared to sons. And so, you know, that's one way we know the disproportionate caregiving role that they not only provide for children, which gets a lot of focus, but we don't always think about it when it comes to older adults. And so both recognizing and formalizing their role, but also protecting them is, is going to be essential. As Dr. Stahl mentioned, there will always be a need for more intensive long-term care in the seniors' care system. It's important that we work toward removing the stigma and guilt that families can feel when they have to make the decision to move a loved one to long-term care. Like many others who have been exposed to the seniors' care sector, Dr. Stahl believes societal ageism makes it easier for people to turn a blind eye to seniors' needs. In his view, one of the first steps toward building a more supportive and robust seniors' care system in Canada will involve changing this narrative, changing our mindset about aging and ageism so that we can prioritize seniors' health and well-being and recognize the value of seniors in our society. We talk a lot about integrated care and integrated systems, and, you know, system by definition is integrated. As we're thinking about this moment that we're in, in in Ontario, Canada, we're talking about Ontario health teams. We've seen uh, new partnerships evolve uh, throughout the course of the pandemic between hospitals and and long-term care homes. Can you share with us your thoughts about how do we move towards those more integrated models and and where does this thing called long-term care fit? If we don't act on actually reimagining and redesigning the system and taking some of the learnings that we had during the pandemic, and I think integration is a key one, we will fail again, right? And I think you're not going to disagree with what I'm going to say either, but one of the challenges early on with COVID-19 and long-term care homes was that the long-term care tables and sector and emergency planning response were separate from the rest of the healthcare system. And that's a huge problem, right? We have 70,000 vulnerable people. And then we can talk about retirement homes where there's 60,000 people living in those and group homes. And these, these were all across, let alone, like, we already know they're segregated from the healthcare system, but they were across different ministries as well, right? And so, yes, we had, you know, amazing models of care that were proactive. So some of my colleagues who started that long-term care plus initiatives, 
where they would have acute care system providing virtual consultation to these long-term care homes. We had, which was born out of necessity, but worked in some circumstances, wasn't certainly wasn't uniform in terms of the quality of response, but or the not the quality is the wrong word, but the you know how well it worked was those partnerships when we had those SWAT teams come in between acute care hospitals. We saw huge collaboration across the infection prevention and control, you know, using that hub and spoke model from the acute care hospital, which housed a lot of that infection prevention and control expertise, and then, you know, placing people on the ground at some of these long-term care homes. And I absolutely think, right, coming back to the beginning of our conversation, if people don't ever step inside a long-term care home for their whole career, they can't have an appreciation of what that world is, and it will be segregated and not integrated. So, you know, whether it's long-term care, whether it's caring for people who are in the community and, and receiving home care, you know, most people don't do home visits their entire career either. But we have a long way to go, right, to integrate, to make it a true continuum of care, rather than what we're still really left with, which is a hyper-segmented continuum. And that hyper-segmented continuum is reinforced by things like, and again, these are terribly hard challenges, and I'm not saying all these things can be fixed, but different electronic health records. The fact that, you know, not only the electronic health care record systems across primary care and uh, acute care and also long-term care are just not integrated at all. They don't talk to each other, right? And the fact that our healthcare practitioners don't travel for the most part between those sectors. So, of course, we are left with a system that is very disjointed. And so, Yes, absolutely. Within this reckoning that we hopefully will have, that that more integrated system across the continuum is going to require disruption and it's going to require real action on it. But I think two fundamental things will need to happen coming out of this. One is going to be um, that that real investment and change in the way we value older adults, because if we don't value it, nothing will come with that. And I think we're going to need to rebuild trust as well. Within our healthcare system, within our long-term care system, there's going to be a trust issue as well. This is ageism on a, on a global front. And, it, you know, most countries have failed to meet the needs of their aging population and the rights of, of seniors, which, which also means, though, that we have an opportunity to share and learn from each other. And, and again, throughout the pandemic, I learned so much from my colleagues in the UK and, and Australia and the United States that prepared us in terms of some of our advocacy and planning work and knowing what questions to ask. And I do wonder, too, if there are opportunities for closer partnerships with with our colleges and our universities to, to encourage those students to go in and get exposed to to working with, with an aging population. It, it's such an interesting, fascinating, complex place to be in terms of what we're learning around the brain and dementia, and, but also just the physiology of aging. Like, what in a very exciting role for you to be in. And I think that the key for us is how do we not let us seep back into complacency well, yeah, it's it's interesting you you mentioned that. Like when I was considering which discipline of medicine I wanted to study, I always knew I wanted to work with you know a marginalized population, and so I I and I you know I read books and I I had global health exposures and I sort of fancied myself as a Paul Farmer, you know, working somewhere providing you know care within you know he he worked in Haiti of course with tuberculosis. 
But I sort of looked out and I said, well, we have this huge population that's some of the biggest consumers of our healthcare system. I'm seeing them every day and no one really wants to look after them. And they also have these, uh, many of the things we've talked about today, these extraordinary challenges and, and complex problems that are going to require careful thinking and collaboration to how to redesign the system for them. That's exciting. Like that's interesting work. Like that's something that we should aspire to, to do. Why do I need to leave my own, not even my own city to be able to, to, to think about this. So I think, I hope we can, as you talked about, whether it's through colleges and universities and I talked about how, you know, I think it should even start earlier, right. Uh, in terms of what we teach people in school, I think if we inspire people and we, you know, and we create also the systems for them to be able to think about and learn about these problems and work upon them, I think we can do remarkable things, but we need to create that spark, but we also need to nurture it, right? And and we haven't done that and we don't give people the opportunity to do that. And so they're not exposed to those problems and they're not even aware of them, uh, which is frankly the issue for many people. They, they can't be something that they desire to do. And so I, I think exposure, but I also think there's huge opportunities, you know, as we talked about, to in, invest in educational opportunities and co-op programs and learning experiences for young people to expose them to that this is really fascinating work, working on a huge issue and challenge of our time. And you have the ability to, you know, make a lasting impact and legacy here. And you know, I think if we do that and we bring in people and we work together the way that we often have during this pandemic, we could do special things for, for the future of older adults. There is a moral imperative, isn't there, in, in how we do that? Absolutely. So if you, if you had a magic wand and, and you were given three wishes to, to move things forward, what would your three wishes be? building off of what we talked about today, it would be to, to first make aging and the needs of older adults, you know, to raise that profile and actually embed it within the minds and the conscience of all sort of Ontarians and Canadians to recognize it as an important, not just social issue, but a gender issue. So to actually change it to the point where people recognize that this is an issue and care about older adults. Because I think everything will stem from that. How you do that, we've talked about some of the ways. Exposing younger people to older adults, having them work with them, creating you know, laboratories and, and ways to nurture their you know, ideas to innovate for this population. So that, that would be one thing. The second thing would be to build a truly integrated continuum of care for older adults, right? Where it's hard enough for someone like you or I to figure out where we need to go in our healthcare system and who we need to call, right? Can you imagine being an older adult who has multiple conditions, takes multiple medications and has multiple providers and sort of swims, not even swims because that sounds too gentle, right? But bounces around uh, between a rehab system, acute care, long-term care, social care, home care. It is a tremendous difficulty for older adults and a huge source of stress for people. So to actually build a much, and I hate the word seamless because it'll never be seamless. You know, it, there will always be a seam, right? But it has to be a much gentler and more user-friendly continuum of care. And I, I think the, the final thing coming out of this is that we 
honor, not just by you know improving the social conscience and not just by building that integrated system, but that we honor sort of what happened during this horrible period and we don't let it leave our, you know, we don't lose that spark and that motivation to actually act on it and to actually transform commissions and reports and ideas and conversations like that and to actually take that forward and to build upon it and to implement it into policy and to act on it. Because I think we do have enough expertise and brains in our province and hearts to do that, right? But the problem is, I think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But I don't think it's something that that moves people. And so I, I think those would be the three things is to make older adults more valued, to build a more integrated continuum of care, and to act on the tragedy and also the lessons we've learned to, to really make change for older adults. I share those wishes with you. Being a change agent is not for the faint of heart. So thank you very much for all that you do. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I will echo your sentiments. I think we could all work better together. I think this issue is bigger than all of us. It really is. You know, there are different visions about how to get there and how to achieve it. But I think putting the needs of older adults and that really imperative to do better by them first will always guide us in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I I think the public are tired of fighting against things. And we really want uh, leadership to fight for and to build. And so let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, Donna. My conversation with Dr. Stahl amplified some of the current challenges we're facing in Canada's seniors care system, but also how we might begin to tackle them before it's too late. Here are my key takeaways from the episode. In Canada's seniors care system, we've known about the growth of the aging population for decades, but yet our public policymakers and our system leaders have done little to prepare for the baby boom. If we hope to be well-equipped to meet the needs of our aging population, we need to begin changing the structures and supports now. Number two, the pandemic resulted in major, major challenges and identified hurdles that we need to overcome on a global scale. We now have an opportunity to reflect on the crisis and use our learnings to create constructive change. Integration will be key as we move forward, and it's important that we don't ignore the systemic issues that have been unearthed by the pandemic. And our third point is one that we'll be talking more about in upcoming episodes, ageism. Ageism is a societal issue in Canada and around the world. As we work together to create more positive and supportive seniors' care systems, a critical part of this work will need to include addressing the discrimination against seniors that has become so pervasive in our society. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Our next episode will be airing on October 12th. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.